Amen. Give it up one more time for our band, y'all. Hey, so my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, last week, this Wednesday, uh, Lester kicked us off on our Bible study. And at my table, we had a, a good conversation with people about, hey, what are some of the obstacles and the barriers that you have to really uh, engaging with Scripture, reading Scripture, growing from Scripture? What are some of the questions that you have? And we thought it would be a really great idea to make sure that we're actually being relevant, that you guys could text questions in to us. So this Wednesday, I'm really looking forward to that. Text your questions into the phone number on our website, and I'll be going through some of those questions, not all of them, um, and uh, we'll, we'll take it from there. All right, before we get into today's word, let me uh, say a brief word of prayer. Lord, uh, you know all the things that are running through our minds, and God, I pray that for these next moments, uh, we would have uh, just uh, the freedom to be fully present with you wherever you are. God, would you show us uh, where you are and who you are, and that you would lead us forward. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Hey, so one of the, my favorite things about Renaissance is that uh, my parents are actually uh, not just members here, but they're active uh, volunteers. They serve on the Eats and Greets team. Uh, once a month, uh, if you walk through those doors, you would have walked past my parents as they try to at least hand you a connection card. Uh, one of the comments I hear most often about my mother is, she is so, so sweet. And she is. Nobody says it about my dad for whatever reason, but that's a, that's a whole other conversation. And my mother is a very sweet woman, um, but what a lot of people don't know is that behind that smile is someone with a lot of power. Uh, when I was about 13, my mother was sworn in as the first female and the first black judge in New Rochelle. Yes, give it up for that. Now, she might be all smiles when she is in Renaissance passing out programs, but if you were to see her in court, you would see uh, another person altogether. As my father affectionately calls her, throw them in jail, Gail. <laughs> she is not the one to play with. Let some knucklehead come into, uh, come into to court, behind on his child support, and he's there with a $1,000 iPhone in his hand and some brand new sneakers and a brand new outfit, she will tell him, hey, the next time I see you, either the child support will be caught up or if I were you, I would bring a toothbrush because you're going to need it in jail for the next six months. Call her bluff if you want to, but she absolutely is not the one to play with. Now, when she's in court, she's a, a different person, constantly followed around by armed court officers. You, can't not, you cannot just walk up to her and approach her. If you were to see her in court, you can't just say, oh, hi, I remember you from Renaissance. There will be armed security guards and armed court officers that are there in between you and her. Now, not even lawyers can go up to her. They have to ask for permission. When she's on the bench, they have to say, Your Honor, may I approach the bench? There's a separation between her and the people that she judges. Uh, but there's a big difference between her and the people that she judges versus when I would walk into the courthouse. When I would walk into the courthouse when I was young, uh, because I you know, left my keys at home or because I needed some money to go to Popeyes, uh, I would be escorted around the metal detectors. And I was not brought into the courtroom. I was taken to her chambers where I could relax in comfort. When she would come into the back, there were no court officers there as a separation between me 
and her. It was no separation whatsoever at all. The chambers are a much different environment. I didn't have anybody standing in between us. There were no officers. I didn't have to ask for permission to approach. There was absolutely no separation. She was coming into the chambers not as a judge, but as a parent. Now, for us in our spiritual lives, um, most of us who are familiar with religion or Christianity in general, uh, we know that God is a judge. Uh, we know that one day, all of us will have to stand and give an account for our lives. What most of us don't know, and by know, I mean actually live out in a real way that actually affects our day-to-day -day interaction with God. What most of us don't know is that the beauty of what the gospel is seeking to do into your life is to invite you not into the courtroom of God's judgment, but into God's chambers, where there is no separation between you and God. As a matter of fact, one of the most dramatic pieces of scripture after Jesus was crucified, uh, scripture recounts that the veil uh, separating um, man from God was torn. And now there was no more separation, no more veil, nothing that came between us and God. Now, a lot of you guys who are new to church or your first time back in a long time, uh, one of the reasons that you might have stayed away for a long time is because the primary way that you view God is as a judge. And coming to court kind of feels like turning yourself in on a warrant. Why would you come just to feel guilty? Why would you come just to experience separation, but the beauty of the gospel is that God is not after approaching you like a judge, but as a parent who invites us not just into the courthouse, but into his chambers. To experience a God where, a relationship with God where we are ushered back into God's presence, and God takes off his robe, and he just simply delights in you as his child. The great tragedy of the Christian life is that most people only know God as a judge, but they don't know and haven't received what the gospel says, that God has taken off his judge's robe for us, um, and he delights in us. And to not know that freedom of walking around the metal detectors, not asking for permission to approach, just relaxing in God's presence without fear. Growing up, I never really had fear of my mother. I certainly respected my mother, and I certainly didn't want to disappoint her, but I never feared that she would throw me in judge, although she did possess that, uh, throw me in jail, although she did possess that power. Most of us in our relationships with God, we're in this process of unlearning God as judge and starting to learn the process of God as a parent. Now, for this reason, uh, the scripture that we're getting into today is so monumentally important, and it uh, comes from the book of Ephesians as we are uh, going through this series. And I, I really want you guys to listen to what the Apostle Paul is telling us, uh, starting in verse 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings, uh, blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Now I want you guys to pay attention to verse 5. God has made us not just the objects of his judgment, but the objects of his affection. And here's what the text is telling us that when you come before God, you are not coming before him as a judge on the bench, but rather God invites us to his chambers as his children. And verse 5 describes how this happened. That says that God has predestined or set in motion your adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself to the good pleasure 
of his will. That you and I have the rights of a child. We have the name of the Father. And the way that you and I should relate to God is profoundly different than standing for God as a judge. Now, God has invited us in to his chambers. Now, one of the great similarities that our culture shares with the ancient uh, world of the Bible is this thing called uh, adoption. Um, and adoption has some things that haven't changed in the last several thousands uh, of years. And here's a couple of truths about adoption. Adoptions always begin entirely on the side of the parent. They always begin on the side of the parent. A parent has to go file a petition and request uh, permission to adopt uh, a child. A kid cannot adopt him or herself. It comes entirely on the side of the parent. Second thing that's very true about adoption is that adoptions are permanent. It's shockingly easy to turn over a natural-born child. Uh, you can do it today if your kids are getting on your nerves, actually. Um, it's very easy to turn over a child that's natural-born to you, but it is almost impossible to turn over a child that you adopted. It is absolutely almost impossible. There has to be uh, some ridiculous reasons, like you're uh, dying of cancer and can no longer ch uh, care for the, for the child, but it is almost impossible for you to end an adoption. So when Scripture says that we are adopted, it, it means to imply a permanence to the relationship. And it changes the status of the child. The, the kid might have been in and out of foster homes. She might have been with other family members. But once they're taken in by a new family, they no longer are what they were. Uh, in his book, um, Slave Citizens and Sons, an author named Francis Lyle says like this, uh, the profound truth of ancient adoption was that the adoptee was taken out of her or his previous state and placed in a new relationship as a child to her or his new father. And here's what scripture is saying to everyone who has received Christ. God has started the adoption process for you. He has paid all of the filing fees for a permanent transaction and has now placed you into the family of God. And when you come before God, you're not coming to stand in his courtroom, but rather you're invited into his chambers. Now, I'd say that the primary reason that I experience anxiety and probably you experience anxiety in your relationship with God is that you are primarily relating to God as a, ju as a judge and not as a parent. That's what makes this scripture today so amazing. And by the grace of God, we'll continue to get it. Now, I think one of the reasons that it's so difficult for us to actually get this concept is um, deep down inside, we're trying to unlearn who uh, we think we are. Now, it's interesting that Scripture calls this an adoption, that your relationship with God is, is like an adoption more than a natural birth, um, because I think it kind of typifies and characterizes some of the challenges that we'll have in actually receiving this truth for our lives. Uh, the nature of an adoption is that you are placed into a family where you did not naturally belong. And along with that comes some adjustments. I've mentioned this before, but one of my friends uh, adopted a child from another country, and when she brought him home, uh, he wasn't automatically coming home like, oh, mom, the mother that I've always known and loved, thank you very much for adopting me. I feel so secure. I feel so loved. I feel so cared for. Uh, their relationship was actually pretty distant, and it took a lot of adjusting along the way. When he first got home, she had all of these toys bought for him that she, uh, it was just her and him living in the house together. And even though it was just them two, he would take all his toys and hide them under the bed, just as he had been doing at the orphanage. In his mind, even though he was in a new place, he was still behaving like his old self. Now, when Scripture says that you and I are adopted, it means to imply to us that there are some natural adjustments for us, that we're not placed in a family that we naturally belonged in, and the process is going to come along with it, some 
adjustments. We're placed into a family where we don't naturally belong. Uh, in another place of Scripture, Paul says like this, that God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, we've been transferred into God's family, and if th that just means that it's going to take some time for us to unlearn some of the stuff and some of the way we've been operating. So be patient with yourself. I was reading a story this past week about uh, ducks, and um, there's a story about a duck uh, who thought that it was a dog. And uh, ducks have this thing, scientific fun fact, something called imprinting. And when a duck is first born, what it does is it, it, it locks itself into the first thing that it sees. 99.9% .9 of the time, it's its mother, and it will now start to behave like its mother. So it would follow its mother around, do everything she does, and basically copy it. But every now and then, a duck will be born, uh, not in front of its mother, but in front of something else, and that duck will be imprinted with something else. And there's a story about a duck that imprinted itself on a dog that was watching it, and that duck basically started to copy everything the dog was doing. Baby duck took one look at the dog and decided that, that it, was, it was his mother, followed the dog around, ran to it for protection, slept with it at night, and spent a hot part of the day under the front porch with the dog. Now, some things couldn't be changed. However, the duck still loved to get into the water and swim around, but there was this dualistic nature that the duck was, trying, was constantly trying to unlearn his first imprinting and learn his true nature. The story of Christianity is very similar. Sometimes we act like children of God, sometimes we don't. It says we've been, born in, we've been born into and grown up into a fallen world, so we have learned the ways of this world. And much like a duck behaving like a dog, we have become like it. Too often, we don't see ourselves correctly. We act like the thing that we think we are rather than what we really are. And my life and your life right now is, is presently a process of unlearning uh, what it looks like to unlearning our previous lives and learning what it looks like to be a child of God. The second reason why I think it's really difficult for you to uh, really grasp the notion of being adopted into God's family is that you can't really identify with childlike struggles. To be a child of God doesn't really excite you because kids have stupid worries. Uh, my son had a play date the other day with a friend, and the biggest concern, rule number one, the biggest thing on the agenda that day was who got to play with the T-Rex. That was it. You and I have real problems, much bigger than who gets to play with certain toys. And to hear that you're a child of God doesn't thrill you because you don't identify with childlike struggles. What you're worrying about is who you're going to spend the rest of your life with. You're worrying about your career and whether or not you're ever going to find something that actually gives you purpose and meaning and do anything that actually matters. You're worried about your health or the health of someone else in your family. You're worried about your future, financially, emotionally. And to hear that you're a child doesn't necessarily excite you because you have some adult worries. It's interesting, I once heard the quote that God has no adult children. All of us are toddlers in the presence of God. And if we are going to grow and to become what God has for us to, to, to be, in some ways, you and I need to learn what it actually means to be more like a child. Jesus, actually, when he was teaching some people in Matthew 18, he says, truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There's a humility and the dependence of children. 
that Scripture is trying to communicate to us, that while we cling to our own ability to accomplish things, we're missing out on the point all together. God just wants you to be a kid sitting in his chambers. That's it. This scripture today is meant to redirect us and show us that we don't have to come to God as a judge, but as a father. And I want to draw out three uh, implications of what Paul is telling us in verse 5 today. Uh, What does it mean to be adopted? If it's true that we have been adopted, that God has predestined us us for adoption, then what are the implications for your life? Uh, The first one, I think, is that it means that to be adopted means that God sees all and still chooses you. God sees everything and still chooses you. Now, when you go through an adoption, and I know this from some of the time I've spent as a family court attorney, uh, you get a packet almost as, uh, as thick as a phone book of all of the tests on this kid. You know all of the kid's uh, tendencies and proclivities and health issues and cognitive issues and learning abilities or disabilities. You know about their past. You know about how they were born. You know their birth weight. You know their parents. You know a biography of everything that is possibly discoverable about the child. And in some ways, it's actually safer to, uh, if you want to, uh, it's actually safer to adopt the kid than it is to have your own in some ways, because with your own, you have no idea what the kid is going to turn out to be. But with an adopted child, you have foreknowledge of everything that has gone on in that kid's life up until the date. When Scripture tells us that we are adopted, it means to imply that God knows everything in your packet. He knows what you struggle with. He knows your inconsistencies. He knows the things that you're not good at. He knows your abilities. He knows your disabilities. God knows everything about you, and it means that he still chose you. Romans 8, Paul says, um, for those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What does this mean? That means that there is absolutely nothing about you, your character, your past traumas, your mistakes, your tendencies that are a surprise to God, and yet God still chose you. It means that the things that disappoint me about me don't disqualify me. The things that disappoint me about me do not disqualify me. God sees all, and he still chose us. The fact that I'm not as consistent as I would like to be is not a disqualifying factor. You are not disqualified from being a child of God because you get on your own nerves or because you're falling below your own standards. God knew all of this, and the scripture says, undeterred, God pursues us. Now, I think that the fear that we have really comes from our culture mainly in an extremely shallow way that we understand love. Uh, What most of us call love is really just infatuation. Infatuation is where you see a limited amount of things and you're really excited for a very short period of time about the things that you see and the things that you like. Love sees all and loves despite of its flaws. One of the biggest challenges I have for uh, couples that are about to get married, whenever I would ask them a question about like, hey, what do you love about what do you love about this other person? And whenever someone goes on to a long rant of all of the things that they love about the other person, how great they make them feel, and they're just, you know, wearing through these rose, they're looking at their relationship through these rose-colored glasses, uh, I know that they haven't even began to scratch the surface of what love is and what love requires. Love requires seeing some ugly stuff and still sticking in there. People who come to me and they're saying, I don't know, I think we're about to get divorced, and, you know, it just wasn't the way it used to be, and, you know, I just don't feel like we're in love anymore. 
You were never in love to begin with. You were in a infatuation. You were excited about some things that made you feel really good, and once those things are no longer there, you wanted to, you're looking for the exit. Love, as God describes it, is much bigger and better than this temporary, shallow thing that we call infatuation. God's love, as we see in 1 Corinthians, is much bigger and better. This is what it is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. When Scripture says that, yes, that you can give God a round of applause for that. When Scripture says that God has loved us and God adopted us, it means that God endures all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and love, God's love for you never ends. The second implication of what the scripture is telling us about what it means to be adopted is that what God aims to do in our life is bigger than just forgiveness. God does more than just forgive you. Forgiveness is a, is a beautiful, beautiful concept, but what God is after in your life is much bigger and better than merely forgiving you of your sins. Forgiveness says that there has been a wrong done, and as a result, the person who has been wronged can either seek after judgment or let the person go without paying restitution. Now, even though I don't practice law anymore, um, I still have my legal license active, uh, and every now and then I'll handle a case, and please don't email me this week for free legal advice because I won't answer. Uh, last year, I was representing a family member of mine that got caught up in something stupid, and we had worked out a deal with the DA's office um, that he, all he had to do was community service, and he would be forgiven. That would satisfy his penalty. Uh, we got to court, and I asked him, hey, how did your community service go? It was only like 15 hours. He didn't have a job at the time. There was no reason why he shouldn't have had it done. Uh, he said, hey, I didn't do it. And I'm like, dude, you have to be killing me. You have to be kidding me. What do you mean you didn't do your community service? This judge is about to throw you in jail. We got to court, and we're watching as previous, as other defendants are going up in front of the judge, and this judge is not playing games with nobody. First question the judge asks is, did you do your community service? Person said no. Two people in a row. Judge says, bailiff, take them back. No questions asked, no mercy, nothing. Take them away. He called our case, and I walked up to the, to the bench with my arms shaking, and uh, voice quivering, I looked down and said, Your Honor, uh, um, if we could just get an, another chance, if we can get a continuance uh, for this, just another date, uh, so that we can complete uh, everything that the court has requested of us. And for whatever reason, I have absolutely no idea why, the judge gave us that chance. The judge threw out a day, he says, how about March 15th? I said, great, judge, thank you very much. And <laughs> I grabbed the dude's arm, and I spun him around, and I said, we're, we're leaving right now, before the judge even has a, a second thought in his mind to undo the mercy that he had just shown us. Now, mercy and forgiveness is simply letting you go. Adoption is much bigger and better than that. Adoption means you can come. Forgiveness is basically releasing you without penalty. Adoption is an invitation 
to come. And when Scripture says that you and I have been adopted by God, it's not merely telling you that you've just been forgiven, although in and of itself, that is a glorious and wonderful truth. What Scripture is telling us is that beyond forgiveness, God gives us an invitation to come to him, not as a judge, but as a father. When Scripture tells us that we've been adopted, it's not because God is merely tolerating us and being merciful to us as undeserving and as beautiful as that truth is, it is much bigger and much better than that. Forgiveness says you can go without paying a penalty, but Scripture is saying us that we are adopted, we can come in as God's child. What is God's motivation for this? It tells us in verse 5, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to what? According to what? The good pleasure of his will. The good pleasure of his will. Adoption is bigger than forgiveness. It's bigger than God giving you one more chance to get it right. It's bigger than God removing um, a, a record, a, a wrong from your record. It's bigger, from, it's bigger than God looking the other way. It's bigger than God giving you another chance. Adoption is the promise that God will now invite you in as his child, and God will parent you just like any good parent would. Now, where I hope this shows up the most in your life this week, to be perfectly honest, is in your prayers. I hope that even if you haven't prayed in a long time, or even if you do pray regularly, I hope that this week you start to develop the most childlike, simple, bold, shameless prayers imaginable. Kids do not ask for things in nice ways. They do not ask for things once. They ask for the most unnecessary things over and over and over and over again, and every now and then, you'll cave and give it to them. I was reading in my CBR this past week, Luke 11, where Jesus was giving a parable on prayer. And he says, a certain man came to his friend's house to ask for bread. The man sent him away and said, it's late, everybody's in bed, go away, come back in the morning. Jesus says that because of this friend's shameless boldness, the friend got up and gave him exactly what he wanted. And he tells us that we should pray like that, with the shameless boldness of a child. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a prosperity preacher. I don't believe that God wants you to have a Rolls Royce or, or, or any of these things. Uh, but I do believe that we have undercut ourselves so much in prayer that we will simply just accept, what, hey, God, whatever you will for our lives, that our lives are so timid, our, lives are so, our prayer lives are so pathetic that we're not coming to God as children. We're not coming to God with any freedom. It's God's good pleasure. I mentioned this on, on Facebook a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, my son has a nightly routine where uh, he gets a story and we, we read him some dinosaur story. And uh, I, I will reenact a, a stuffed animal story just to try to get him to go to bed. And then after the story, he gets up and he runs and he closes the door and he says, Daddy, no weaving. Or he can't pronounce L's yet, so he wants to say no leaving. For those next five minutes, I'll sit in a room with him, and I'll pray for him as he goes through his different stall tactics to keep me in the room with him. Daddy, I want to watch basketball. That one actually almost worked, so I'm like, well, <laughs> he, he says he wants to watch Steph Curry. I, I mean, who, what kind of dad would I be to withhold that from him? No good thing does God withhold, as the scripture says. <laughs> he has no idea 
that those five minutes where he has locked me in that room are by far my favorite five minutes of the day. Here's a scripture telling you about you being adopted in Christ, that it is God's good pleasure that invites you into relationship with him. It is God's good pleasure that invites you to pray with him. It is God's good pleasure that invites you into relationship with him. It is not as a judge, but as a father. And the great tragedy of your prayer life would be that you are praying to God like he is a judge, asking for permission to approach the bench when God is simply sitting on the floor with pajama pants, welcoming you into relationship with him. Listen, I don't know what you put down praying for, but just start up this week again. Start praying boldly, shamelessly for whatever is on your heart and for your mind. The things that you've long considered gone, keep praying. There's a scripture uh, in 1 Kings 17 where there's a a prophet man, his name Elijah, and uh, God gives Elijah word that there's going to come rain in his life. And Elijah bends his knees down and he prays to God. And over and over again, as he sends his servant away to look for rain, his servant comes back with the same report every single time. I don't see anything. Elijah says, go back. And he keeps on praying. And the seventh time, he started to see the cloud forming the size of a man's hand, and he started to see God move in his life. Listen, some of us have given up on prayers way too easily. We've decided that this is too big or too annoying for God to consider. And I'm not telling you that this is a blank check that God will do whatever you want. We can't manipulate God. He is sovereign. He's in control. But I am telling you this. God invites us into a relationship with him as children. God wants to provide for us. So keep praying. The last implication of adoption is that being adopted means that our worry is completely unnecessary. I can think of a thousand reasons why I worry. Um, I I can't think of one that actually leads to a good place, that actually means that my worry has actually accomplished something. To be adopted means that your father has all of the resources in the world, that even if you have a, a bad week, God has Um, more than enough in his resources to guide you forward. The most anxiety-free child is the one who knows that her or his parents have a lot of resources. One of the reasons I've noticed that people are so paralyzed in their decision-making is they think that this is the only chance they have to get it right. I can guarantee you one person who is not that worried about her decisions, Malia Obama. I guarantee you she wasn't stressing over college. Like, if this is not the perfect college and I don't know what's going to happen, she probably had a couple on her list and picked one because she knows that her parents have the resources and the treasures and the connections that she is fine regardless. For many of us, uh, what we need to know is that our worry is so unnecessary. To be a child of God means that God is obligated to us, not just that we are obligated to God. Paul prays this prayer in Ephesians 1, 17 through 19, and it's a prayer that I would welcome you to read over and over again this week. And I think it's appropriate for us to mull over this over and over again. Here's his prayer for us. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength? The hope of his calling, the wealth of his glorious inheritance, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards you, my brothers and my sisters. 
that you would approach God not with paranoia, mistrust, and feeling that life is up to your own well-being, but you would approach God with with the childlike confidence of a small kid. Now, in just a moment, we're going to be doing something called communion, and communion at Renaissance uh, serves uh, serves us in a, a number of ways. One of the primary functions in which it serves us, it is that it's a tangible reminder of God's commitment to us, particularly the lengths that God would go to in order to give us himself, to reconcile the relationship between us and God. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus um, was with his closest friends, he sat them around a table and he invited them into a meal and he took some bread and he broke it. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he took some wine and he poured it out. He says, now this is my blood, which is given for you for the remission of your sins. We've asked this question before, it's a rhetorical one from scripture, that if God did not withhold his own son, his only son, how much more along with with him will he graciously give you all things? If God didn't withhold Jesus, what do you mean he would withhold something else from you? No good thing does God withhold from those who love him. And in some ways, communion is um, an act of revolution against ourselves, that we are standing up and declaring truths that we may not even believe fully at the moment, but we are standing up and saying, God, you won't withhold anything good from me, and I can come to you not as a judge, but as a father. So during this next song, please come and receive the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, If you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ and you don't know where you stand with God, we would welcome you to, to remain in your seats, and I don't want you to feel the pressure to come up just because other people are coming. But please sit and pray and reflect on a a word or a scripture that has been read today. Everyone else, you can please come at this time. There will be two stations in the front for you to receive.